Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I am Dr. Jorge Red of Texas Tech University, the host of the channel. Today, we're going to be talking to Joel Franks uh, regarding his new book, Asian American Basketball, A Century of Sport, Community, and Culture, published by McFarlane. Joel, thank you for joining us on the channel today. Thank you for having me. Okay. Joel, before we get started uh, discussing your book, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a uh, native-born Californian, and uh, more particularly, I'm, I've am i been living in the South Bay in the San Jose area all my life. I went to community college in this area, went to West Valley College. Then I went to uh, San Jose State, where I got my BA and MA in history. Then I did something very daring. I headed down to Orange County <laughs> uh, uh, to uh, get a degree, uh, get my PhD in the program in comparative culture down at UC Irvine, okay. uh, which is no, which no longer exists. I mean the the, the department. Uh, and after that, I kind of struggled to get academic jobs. I worked in a variety of uh, of fields, including tech recruiting. And working with the, de- the development disabled, and the, but finally I got a lectureship at San Jose State, uh, uh, teaching primarily in Asian American Studies and American Studies uh, Department. And but beyond that, uh, I've got community colleges. I right now I'm teaching uh, part time at the Anza College in Cupertino. Okay, and uh, I, I I believe you are. Uh, so you're retired from San Jose State. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, good, good. Well, you know, I, I know that you have done a lot of work on Asian Americans and sports. How did you come to write this particular book? Well, this particular book kind of grew out of my other work in the area of, of Asian Americans and sports. That is, uh, several years ago, as we all know, uh, Jeremy Lin hit the basketball world and the sports world in general uh, as, as a big sensation. And what struck me then, well, beyond the fact that he was kind of a local guy, he came from an area close to where we live, uh, he came from Palo Alto, mm-hmm. and his brother, his younger brother, played against my son in high school okay. in basketball. Other than that... Uh, what struck me was the impression that a lot of people had that this was something startling, something new. Mm-hmm. Americans playing basketball. What a, what a concept. And so I knew from my own studies that Asian Americans have been playing basketball for a long time. Uh, in their commu- on their community teams, they played high school ball. Some of them played junior college and, 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 and college ball. And we're not just talking about men, we're also talking about women. Mm-hmm. So this kind of led me to write this book, that is to talk about Asian American experiences beyond Jeremy Lin. Okay. And, and, you know, if I may, let me just ask you real, real quick that, it, you know, so, so in other, in other words, what you're telling me is that people were shocked that an Asian American could be 
both very academically gifted as as Jeremy Lin is, given that he 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 went to Harvard, and that he could that they could also be athletic. Is that is that sort of the the reaction that a, that a lot of folks got a lot uh, from of, his story? Right, uh, not everybody, of course, especially yeah, sure, the folks who are familiar with community basketball, Asian, Chinese American, Japanese American basketball, but a lot of folks had that response. And uh, I wanted to help correct that response, provide, even though I don't think Jeremy Lin himself, and I don't know really too much about his, his youth, I don't think he was that much of a product of Asian American community basketball or Chinese American community basketball. Mm-hmm. Asian American basketball in general is is rooted in the community. Right, and 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 we're gonna and we're gonna get to that. So I I think that's a good point for us to begin to focus on the question specifically on the uh, on uh, in, from the book. And it, again, just at the very start of the book, you mentioned that newspapers of the 1920s and 1930s featured anti-Asian politics and racial nativism. Can you give us an example or two about how this played out concerning Asian American athletes? And I guess it does tie in with this question that we were just discussing about Jeremy Lin. Right. Well, I think there was an attempt to exoticize Asian Asian American athletes. Mm -hmm. They appeared in mainstream newspapers and, and, and mainstream teams as either something special or something or or, or as, as something that needed to be marginalized. So one way that was often done was really focusing on the issue of height mm-hmm. uh, to an excessive extent. That is, of course, uh, Asian Americans do tend to be smaller than, than other groups of people. But even when Asian American athletes were relatively normal of normal size, uh, for example, there was an excellent uh, uh, Cal basketball player by the name of Ted Ohashi who played in the early 1930s for Cal, and he was mm-hmm. about six feet tall, which was not an unusually small size for a guard back in those days, or even even now. Mm-hmm. You would see references to Ted Ohashi as tiny, as little, or small, as, as, as and whether consciously or not, it was. It was. It seemed to project the sense that these people are are strange. They're weird. They are not normal. And they shouldn't be put. And they shouldn't be playing an all American game like basketball. Or if they do, it's just damned weird. I mean, it just it's just something that it's just abnormal. It's you, you, something that should be expected. And, and you you realize, of course, that you know Ignacio Garcia over at at BYU. Did a few book a, a book a few years ago called "When Mexicans Could Play Ball," and a lot of the same arguments, uh, particularly here in Texas, are being made about Mexican American basketball players, uh, pr- primarily uh, you know in the San Antonio area. Right. Yeah. So, so these folks are considered quote exotic, and they they shouldn't really be on the basketball court, or if they are there's something just highly unusual about them. Right. And I think beyond that, something that does kind of link to uh, Latino uh, uh, athletes is the exaggeration in terms of how the press deal with language. Mm -hmm. That is, I've done a lot of work on a group of largely Asian American baseball players from Hawaii who, Mm -hmm. who, 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 who barnstormed the U.S., now a lot of these guys were perf- were U.S. because they were born in Hawaii. They were U.S. citizens. Many mm-hmm. of them uh, went to school, the high school, and beyond. 
Uh, mm-hmm. We're perfectly capable of speaking. You know, I, 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 you know, I'm air quoting now, and this doesn't help you at all. Sure. Uh, mainstream uh, uh, English, but they're often, you know, they're often quoted in the press as speaking a, a broken English. Right. Yeah. And that's that. that certainly that certainly is not unique to the Asian American. Uh, I mean, uh, obviously Roberto Clemente and some of these other great major league ball players of the. Uh, the late 1950s and 1960s, early 1960s, had to suffer through the same uh, through the same situation. Right. Okay. Now, in chapter one, you discuss the role of basketball in Asian American communities up until the end of World War II. How did the game start in those communities? What were some of the key areas of concentration in, in regards to geographic areas of concentration for these basketball teams? And can you also just give us a sense of some of the most important teams and athletes? in places such as San Francisco, Portland, and Boston. Okay. I'll try to uh, uh, help me here as I, as I go through this. Uh, in terms of, of why basketball started in Asian American communities, I think Asian Americans in, in Hawaii and, and the West Coast, and even on the East Coast, East Coast and Midwest, tended to be urban. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a tendency, but tended to be urban. And, and basketball seems to be the perfect urban sport. It doesn't. Right. You, you don't need that much room to do it, uh, and you can play it outside. You can play it inside. You don't need a lot of equipment or or expensive uniforms. And Asian American communities up through 1945 were generally working class, and mm-hmm. and and generally the the boys and girls who played the sport as kids and as they grew up towards young adulthood, they didn't have a lot of money. So 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 basketball proved to be kind of a, a good way to demonstrate their athletic skills, have a little fun, and represent at the same time. Right. At the same time, there were community efforts to encourage this. Uh, 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 community basketball uh, by way of community elder, elders one that you might, might want to use sports like basketball as a way to generate bonds across generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Buddhist church might want to might want to use basketball as a way to kind of bring in or maintain support from from second generation people who might be tempted to play, join the YMCA or, 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 or join other churches. Mm-hmm. So there was various you know, external and internal forces encouraging people to engage. In- and, and, and this pattern, this pattern was, was similar across all of these communities, whether they were on the West coast or on the East coast. Well, I think you, I think, I think, I think so. Uh, although my primary research has more been on has been more on the west coast and Hawaii uh, than on, than on the east coast, but okay. where where the where you generally have found Asian Americans at least up through 1945, but but I I think so to, to to a wide extent I do see tend to see the same situation developing in in New York and Philadelphia, as Seattle, L.A., San Francisco, San Jose, okay. Honolulu. Okay. What was the significance of the sport to the Japanese Americans who were interned in the uh, some of the various um, uh, ca- uh, reconcentration camps during World War II? But I think it's kind of interesting, and one thing which you know I tried to provide some perspective on is that you know, generally speaking, when when people think about Japanese American ath- athletic endeavors uh, in the camps, they generally focus on baseball. Understandable, 
But basketball was a sport which kind of linked football to baseball. It was something which in the camps, once again, could be played relatively easily uh, mm-hmm. without a lot of without a, a lot of equipment, without a lot of space. Although in places like uh, like some camps were in god awful places, it could be god awful cold during the winter. Right. And so, uh, Heart Mountain Camp in Wyoming, uh, basketball players and supporters at that camp were. Were, were kind of disturbed at the fact that they had to play outside, you know, in, in, in November, December, and February. So they wanted to be able to play basketball indoors. And the one thing about basketball is, for Japanese Americans, basketball has been seen as a community endeavor which crossed gender lines. Okay. And so for girl, girls and young women, basketball was, was their sport in the camp. Baseball might have been, been the sport for the men, but basketball was a sport for, for, for the young women. Okay, okay. Um, in Chapter 2, you look at Chinese and Japanese-American basketball in the years between 1945 and 1965. What is the significance of those two decades? And again, what were some of the important teams or some of the important players that, that you could mention for us uh, from that chapter? Well, in terms of... Uh, the post-war years, well, the war itself kind of generated for a wide variety of reasons uh, this sense of racial liberalism that we have fought against uh, tyrannical powers, totalitarian powers that mm-hmm. have, 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 have tried to advance a, a racist ideology. And so if we're going to proclaim ourselves, if America's going to proclaim itself as the land of the free, the home of the brave, then maybe we should do something about adding at least some facets of institutionalized racism. Okay. So we, start, we do start to see more immigration reform, and we start to see policies which open up uh, greater opportunities for second and third generation Asian Americans, like under the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. The Asian Americans start to spread out from their communities to the suburbs. And so more and more sports become a way for people to link to one another, even though one person might be playing and or might be living in, in San Jose, um, and, and his or her parents might be in San Francisco, Chinatown. Sports was a way to link Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, Filipino Americans across three geographical distances. Now, were, were some of these community teams, <coughs> were, the, were some of these community teams playing against white teams oh, yeah. or African American teams? Oh, well, uh, less, less African American teams, but you do, you do find some examples of that. Uh, but 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 I do want to also modify my earlier statement. It isn't to say that there was no longer San Francisco Chinatown. San Francisco Chinatown dramatically transformed itself because of suburbanization, but San Francisco Chinatown remained a hub, uh, for example, for Chinese-American basketball for at least a decade after, after, uh, after World War II. And okay. two of the best Asian-American basketball, community basketball teams, came out of... Uh, San Francisco Chinatown, and uh, both of them sponsored by the St. Mary's Church. Uh, uh, the, and so the male team was called the the the, 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 the San Francisco Chinese Saints, and the female team was called surprisingly enough the Lady Saints. Okay, they were, and they were led by uh, siblings, the Wong, the Wong brothers. Uh, uh, Willie Wong was 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 a sensational basketball player, five feet three, with a great outside shot. Uh, he was often called by the press Woo Woo Wong. Uh, 
even a little bit for USF. And his sister, Helen Wall, was a sensational basketball player uh, and uh, also a star tennis player in, in the 1950s. And so, and so I, I do want to emphasize that while people are, are kind of spreading out to the suburbs, urban communities still provide a hub for a lot of, for a lot of the basketball play that okay. they can play. Okay, okay. Um. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You mentioned earlier the the Filipino community. Um, How does the game begin in the Filipino community? And again, what are some of the key locations for that community's endeavors in basketball? Well, you know, uh, in terms of origins, probably... The best probably might. I'm going to do a little bit of speculation here, but but a lot. But when the U.S. You know, conquered the Philippines, the U.S. used sports as one of, one of the ways to kind of pacify the so-called native of right. on basketball. And so I think there was before Filipinos came to the U.S. A lot of them were familiar with uh, uh, American sports or, or or sports that Americans claimed some possession over like baseball, volleyball, and basketball. So probably a lot of these young men were familiar with basketball as they came here. Uh, once again, they, they faced, as other Asian American communities, they faced a lot of housing discrimination, job discrimination. So if they were going to form basketball teams, they would have to form them on their own. And probably one of the most famous uh, Filipino-American community team was a team called the San Francisco Mangoes which played out of San Francisco beginning in the late 40s for at least a, another decade. And it, it was started by a group of young men on their own without much support from community elders. But once they started to beat teams, uh, then community elders started to help finance the team. Now, up and down the West Coast, uh, basketball was a big activity for for, for Filipino young people. They had tournaments up and down the West Coast from Seattle, down, at least down to Los Angeles. And a lot of Filipino young men and w- women who are part of these tournaments you know, have vivid memories of those experiences of traveling from their homes to places like San Jose or Seattle to play other teams. And some of the best memories of their youth uh, revolved around these community basketball endeavors. And, and, and you know what, you, you sort of, that answer sort of moves us over to chapters three and four, because what you talk about in those chapters is uh, how Asian Americans used basketball as a cultural, you know, to, to create cultural border crossings. Uh, specifically, you mentioned how cross, cross-racial ethnic basketball played out in places such as Hawaii. Why don't you discuss that for a little bit? Well, Hawaii is kind of an interesting place, and it's often presented as kind of this racial paradise, and which is to- very exaggerated. But race does work differently in 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 uh, in Hawaii. Uh, from my perspective, there's a, there's there's a tremendous collaboration, or I, I should say, tremendous in a positive sense, but powerful collaboration between race, ethnicity, and class. 
And so we see in Hawaii, more so than in the mainland, the possibility of in the early 1900s, that is during the first half of the 1900s, you might more likely see a Chinese-American living next door to a Portuguese-American or a a Filipino-American. That is, residence and schooling revolved around class to a significant extent. Okay. And so... And so you might see more, more likely you might see on the one hand, ethnic-based teams and leagues, Japanese American League, Chinese American League, Filipino American League. But at the same time, you might see more multiracial teams or multi-ethnic teams mm-hmm. around job, neighborhood, that sort of thing. Much more than you might see on the mainland at that same time. Okay. Give us a sense of, and, and I know, you, you know you've mentioned the fact that Asian American women played basketball, but... Give us uh, some specifics. Uh, you know, again, what were some, you know, couple of key teams or key players from that 1945 to 1965 era? Well, as I said before, the, the San Francisco Chinese Saints are probably uh, the, the best known uh, female Asian American team, at least on the U.S. mainland. And they're led by Helen Wong. And they played white teams. Uh, I believe they played at least one black team. They they won way more often than they lost. Although they did tend to be a little bit on the small side, so if they ran into teams that were pretty big, then they, they might lose. But everybody often had you know, tremendous th- tremendous things to say about Helen Wong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably mentioned in the book. Uh, the fact that uh, she went to a, a school led by Hank Lucetti, you know, who was the Michael Jordan of the of the mid twentieth mid twentieth century, and okay. people were astonished at her shooting ability. Like Hank Lucetti himself said that she was the only person in the whole camp, male or female, who was able to command the one handed set shot uh, that he helped pioneer. And so that, that that's one example. Another example is something that. It does kind of precede the 1945. I want to kind of get back to it because I didn't talk about these people much in the book. And I'm writing, working on a history of sports in California. I want to kind of rectify it. Okay. And this is a group of Japanese-American women from Stockton called the Busy Beats. And they they dominated Japanese-American female basketball from 1928 to 1940. No, from 1928 to 1940. Uh, they won about 240 games straight. And they, they barnstormed the Southwest, uh, playing various Japanese-American teams. Uh, they had no particular star like Helen Wong, but but they were a machine. And they kind of represented uh, the pride of Japanese-Americans uh, in the Central Valley, very, very adequately. You, let me, you know, now, now that you, you mentioned that term pride and, and represented, you know, and, and we'll talk again uh, some more about this towards the end when we once again uh, we bring up Jeremy Lin and, and also the, uh, the head coach of the Miami Heat, Eric Spolstra. What do you think or what, what would your argument be as far as what these teams, these successful teams, these successful athletes represent to the broader community, to the white community, how are how is their success a challenge to to white hegemony? Well, you know, it. I feel a little. I think the answer is somewhat ambivalent because, on the one hand, it does offer a challenge. I mean, these these success stories do offer a challenge to white hegemony, 
But at the same time, the struggle has to be continually fought. And it kind of goes, I kind of jump ahead to Jeremy Lin. I mean, mm -hmm. that is Asian Americans as well as other marginalized people, they have to, and not just in sports, they have to keep on proving themselves mm -hmm. over and over again. And so that is, yes, to go back to that baseball team I talked about from Hawaii, these guys won 60, 70, 80% of their games, okay? from the years 1912 to 1916 against college teams, semi-pro teams, Negro League teams, uh, and some uh, minor league teams. And after it was all done, people said, wow, what a great team. And it's forgotten. Like, every, and, and that is, to a certain extent, yeah, the links are established, positive press is, is generated, but it's been forgotten. Yeah. White hegemony is a, is a powerful thing, and and it can be chipped away at, but there's always, a, it, it is pretty effective at, you know, plastering over those chips. Mm -hmm. Now, so far we've talked about community teams and some, and some high school teams. Uh, in Chapter 5, you focus on Asian Americans at the collegiate and even at the professional level. Again, who were some of the most important players of these years up to about the mid-1960s? Okay, well, uh, uh, there weren't to be, admittedly, uh, a lot of uh, success in terms of Asian Americans penetrating four-year schools and, and, and pro schools. But at the same time, we do find on, on the college level uh, – Athletes like Ted Ohashi, as I said before, who was considered to be a you know a, a very good defender and uh, and and and, uh, and 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 ball handler for Cal. He was considered to be one of the best players on the Pacific Coast in the early 1930s. Mm -hmm. And during World War II, uh, we see some Asian Americans uh, playing for big time schools like. University of Washington and University of Oregon and Gonzaga. Wasn't there wasn't there a basket a, a, a Japanese American who helped uh, lead the University of Utah to a national title? I believe Wadmasaka. Okay, uh, and uh, played for University of Utah and led University or helped lead University of Utah. I shouldn't make him a one man team because he wasn't. There are there are several good players on that team, but certainly helped lead University of, of Utah to to an NCAA championship and an NIT championship at a time when the NIT, because it was, I mean, it, it was a stage in New York City, was considered to be the equal of the NCAA. Right, right. And his performance at Madison Square Garden was 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 so extensive and so impressive uh, during the NIT. And it helped the guy who ran uh, the New York Knickerbockers at that time, Ned, gosh, I got my, Ned Irish. He had Madison Square Garden and the New York Knick Knickerbockers to sign Rod Masaka to a, a contract to the New York Knickerbockers. Really? And okay. He played for the New York Knickerbockers for, we know that we call them the New York Knicks now, uh, for a few games. He did get cut. Uh, apparently because he wasn't tall enough. Although once again, you know, there are other five feet eight to five feet nine guards in, in, in playing elite professional basketball at that time. Okay. But I think I'm interestingly enough, uh, Abe Saperstein, who, who ran the Harlem Globe Charters at that time, uh, offered uh, Wad Masaka a contract to travel with the Globe Charters. And really? And Wad Masaka said, ah, I guess I haven't had enough of professional basketball. I want to get an engineering degree. So he said, he said the heck with that. Okay. Okay. Now chapter six now moves us to the years beyond 1965. And I guess really the key thing that's happening here 
is that Asian Americans are becoming more integrated into the broader American society. How does that impact community basketball? Well, I think I was trying to get back to it earlier. I think, once again, it, it, it affects it because now you have to deal with the fact that you've got a lot of people that have moved out of concentrated ethnic enclaves in San Francisco and L.A. Uh, so more and more community basketball is about actually linking people across maybe relatively small geographical barriers, but still significant, and, and also class barriers, because now we start to see uh, people moving into the suburbs. Uh, they're, thanks to the GI Bill and, and, and economic growth, uh, they're able to put together the middle-class uh, uh, lifestyles. And so community basketball becomes a way, once again, like in, in my hometown of, of my home area of Santa Clara County, uh, the San Jose, Japantown, really does, they're not, they had there no longer is a lot of people living in San Jose, Japantown. Japanese Americans are now living in San Jose, but you can find them in Cupertino and Palo Alto and Mountain View. But Japanese American leagues and Japanese American community leagues and teams are able to kind of bring together people from different geographic areas in the South Bay and, and across essentially generational lines and class lines. And so it becomes a way for, for people who might live you know, miles away from J- Japantown to kind of link up to, to their past. So, yeah. so, so, so community basketball becomes a way, once again, to, for people to develop a sense of cultural citizenship, a sense of belonging to an ethnic group, but also wanting to make links to people beyond that ethnic group. Okay. Um, again, in this era, who are some of the key uh, uh, female uh players in that post-65 era? Well, uh, thanks to Title IX, we start to see uh, college basketball become a major venue for a significant Mm -hmm. number of Asian American basketball players. Uh, In recent years, for example, uh, a number of Japanese American basketball players that played big-time college basketball. Uh, Relatively close by, Linda Yamasaki from, from the Pacific Northwest was a six foot two inch forward for for Stanford when Stanford well Stanford always has elite basketball teams mm-hmm. uh, down in Los Angeles uh, 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 let's see God I, 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 I kind of blanked out on, on these on these win oh Khalid Matsahara uh, was a successful uh, coach for UC Irvine uh, during the 1990s and uh, USC and UCLA have also suited up very fine Japanese-American point guards. In fact, a number of, of Division One, Division Two, and Division Three teams have Asian-American female basketball players. Okay. Um, let's try to bring this, I think, to the present now. Um, and we've talked about Jeremy Lin and, you know, I, I mentioned Eric Spolstra. What would you argue is the significance of a player like Lynn and a coach like Spolstra? Well, I think hopefully, hopefully they have built significant links to experiences beyond that of Asian Americans. They provided a cultural bridge. Uh, people now are more aware of the, the fact that a person of Jeremy Lynn's ethnic background or Eric Spolstra's ethnic background can play well or coach well. And by the way, Eric Spolster was an excellent basketball coach. Uh, I mean, basketball player for for Portland. Uh, he wasn't the he wasn't the NBA caliber, but but he was a very good basketball player. Uh, and by the way, Eric Spolster does possess Filipino ancestry. Uh, 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, and so, uh, and so hopefully it does build cultural bridges. Hopefully it inspires a lot of young people of Asian ancestry to want to play more basketball, to want, want to at least succeed as much as they possibly can, given the fact that there are other ways to be successful in basketball than being in the NBA. That's, I think that's one of, one of my inspirations, is to, is, 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 to, is to recognize that there are multiple ways in which sports are good right. being played by elite athletes. Right, uh, but to the extent that, that that they have been able to and continue to to generate interest in sport as something that's fun, enjoyable, something that you can master, and something that isn't beyond your your ability, that Asian Americans can be good basketball players, they can be good basketball coaches, and I think they've done a world of good. Despite and the fact, at least in Jeremy Lin's case, there's been a lot of frustration. And who is Jeremy Lin playing for now? I, I really do not remember. Uh, a Chinese professional team. Okay, okay. Uh, now, but I think he did quit that team, and he's going to try to get back into the NBA. Okay. And let's hope, and uh, you know, uh, being uh, from Miami, I, I am certainly hopeful that Eric Spolstra will be able to uh, – guide the heat to at least one more win against the uh against the lakers Actually, that would be nice i mean you know unlike a lot of people up in the bay area i don't hate anything you know i don't hate anything produced by los angeles like and and, and i have to admit that uh back in the 80s 60s and 70s i kind of liked the lakers you know uh you know i like magic and kareem and and even before that jerry west and elgin baylor uh, yeah. I don't have any particular hatred for, for for the Lakers, but but I agree. I I like, kind of like I kind of like upsets, and and I think it'd be great. And I think uh, I enjoy watching the Miami Heat, although if they don't, if, if Drogage Drogage is still hurt, then I don't know. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> you know, I I think really uh, towards the end of the book, and, and and this is one of the reasons why I I enjoy your work as much as I do, because I think in, in many ways it mirrors some of the research that I do. At the end of the book, you argue that one of the goals in your work was to develop, quote, a more democratic perspective on sports history. A, what do you mean by that? And B, how did this book help? To, how does this book help to accomplish that goal? Well, what I mean by that, and you know, and the part of it is there's something. That, I mean, more and more, this is a paper tiger. I mean, I think I think my concerns about developing a more democratic perspective on sports history is more and more being alleviated partly by you and you know other scholars but when i started to do sports history and mostly or it was east coast oriented mm-hmm. for understandable reasons and the lead sport area uh, oriented that is oriented towards you know new york boston philadelphia right. uh, the elite teams the elite athletes who are disproportionately white and to the extent that people might might transcend uh whiteness uh, then it was about african americans living on the east coast uh and so a whole bunch of 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 sporting experiences beyond the east coast were being not totally but largely ignored and so my feeling was if we're we're going to provide a more democratic uh perspective on sports history we have to expand. We had to expand beyond the East Coast to the, to the West, to Hawaii, to Samoa. We had to expand our look, our perspective on, on, on sports history to American Indians, Mexican Americans, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, and and look more at, at 
at the experiences not only of race and ethnicity and gender, but also the experiences of class. I mean, right. that it was, you know, I mean, one of the things which, which generate community sports to a significant extent is the fact that a lot of the kids involved were working class kids or poor kids. And they couldn't play on in playing school sports, partly because their parents, one, didn't want them to go to school beyond a certain point because they had to earn money to help the family out. And they right. did go to school. Their parents wanted them to concentrate on on either doing their homework after they got home from school or or doing or or, or or working around the house or working in the family business or looking at after looking after the siblings. So the right. time they could play often was at night when they didn't have to work or they finished their studies or on a Sunday. And so and so we have so, so we have to also look at the issue of, of class and how that intersects race and ethnicity. Right, right. Well, I, I think that's I think that's a great response, and and I hope that that this type of work continues to encourage uh, scholars to look at even more varied aspects of the uh, the American uh, sporting scene, um, especially among among minorities. And again, you know, move beyond that black white dichotomy that that has been so prevalent in American sports history for so long. I mean, it's, it it was understandably generated. I mean, sure. I, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I, there's nothing intrinsically wrong about studying East Coast history or or the experiences of, of racial minority groups on the East Coast. It just it, you have to have to expand it. Right, right. Uh, Joel, is there anything that we have not covered that you would want to uh, to discuss? Well, I'm sure about two or three days from now I'll think of something, but not right now. Okay, okay. Well, Joel, believe it or not, we've been talking for about 45 minutes. We've taken up uh, uh, quite a bit of your time. Uh, I, I want to thank you for, for visiting with us. This is a great, great book. Uh, again, let me mention the, the, the title. It's Asian American Basketball, A Century of Sport, Community, and Culture, published by McFarland. Um, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Okay. Well, thank you for having me.